Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. This is episode 21. So Jackie, today we have another one of my good keto mates, Terry Lance. Yeah, you've known her a long time. Yeah, um, Terry is part of the gang, the Keto Conference and Keto Fest gang. And I got to know Terry uh, way back in 2017 when we first met at the Low Carb Breckenridge Conference. Um, along with the uh, two Keto Dudes gang that, um, that we first met at this conference, we shared a house. And it was really lovely um, to be there with obviously the gang um, as we were hosting uh, a lot of the um, keto rock stars that were presenting and attending at um, the Low Carb Breckenridge Conference. So that year, as well as the next year, I got to to meet Terry a couple of times um, at the conferences and as well as, um, you know, being an active volunteer in the Keto Fest uh, festival um, mm. that was in New New London. Um, so that was the where Carl and Richard turned New London into a keto, keto town. town. So that was that was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun as well. So um, yeah, yes. so getting to know Terry, um, she is a a really maybe one of the quiet um, the quiet rock stars in our in our community, but um, certainly her presence. And contribution to the forums and um, to the groups is is really it's really wonderful. Yeah, and she um, she seems a very deep thinker and really goes dives deep into the psychological effects. Yeah, and um, and that's obviously um, part of her um, profession occupation as a as a psychologist, but. Um, She's very real, so one of the real and accessible um, rock stars that um, is quietly, perhaps in the background, but um, certainly makes her presence felt with um, with loads of resources and advice in the in the groups and forums. Hmm. So, Jackie, why don't you tell us a bit more about her? Terry Lance comes to this low carb, high fat keto arena as part of her own personal and now professional journey. She battled obesity all of her life since childhood and was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in her early 30s. It wasn't until the age of 45 that she learned that she could actually manage her weight and reverse her diabetes through her dietary approach and also fasting. Professionally, she started as a middle school teacher before attending graduate school to earn her PhD as a psychologist. 
She then spent 14 years as a therapist in private practice. During her health transformation, Terry began working as a coach at the Fasting Method. She now enjoys coaching others to achieve their weight loss and health goals. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. Um, And Jackie, we're very excited to have our good friend Terry Lance with us today. So, Terry, like we start every podcast, um, where in the world are you? <laughs> Hi, Louise. Hi, Jackie. Uh, I am in San Diego, California in the U.S., so I'm on the west coast of the U.S. at this time. Fantastic. So it's really lovely to have you with us, and uh, we are bridging multiple time zones, um, so very late for me mid-afternoon for Jackie and thank you very much for your early morning start so um yeah we really appreciate you taking the time and in the on the zoom recording we're getting flashes of your your favorite um canines there so um yeah why don't you introduce (laughs) your your fairy feline fur children then well this is Koa he is um my best memento from Hawaii I lived in Hawaii last year and I adopted him there and then at some point, Gracie may walk through as well. And she is my little old woman, but she still acts like a puppy. So Gracie and Cola. Oh, I was going to say, Louise, so they're really, not feline; they're can- canines. <laughs> I did, I did very, very canines, didn't I? No, anyway. <laughs> you said felines. <laughs> well, that's because I'm the crazy cat lady here. So um, yeah. there we go. Anyway, they're very friends. Very friends. That's what. That's right. Anyway, so Terry. Tell us a little bit how you got started in on your low-carb journey. Sure. Um, I'll back up even a little bit before that of just kind of my health uh, journey. Um, I, I struggled with my weight from the age of about seven on. I was overweight as a kid, as an adolescent, all the way through my adult life. And during my adult life, I would go off and on a lot of different diet plans and try and do anything I could to lose weight. And what I didn't know at the time is that I also was creating a really uh, superior case of type 2 diabetes. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, I was diagnosed, I guess not wasn't until because that is pretty young to be diagnosed, but I was still struggling with my weight and was very diabetic at the time. So I started taking a lot of medication. I did very little to change what I was eating. I thought, you know, by the time I'm 75 and this slows me down, they will have cured it or they will know what to do about it. So I was very uh, stubborn and naive. So it wasn't until I got to probably my mid 40s where I realized I was not doing well. I continued to struggle with my weight and my diabetes was still not well enough managed. And I was on five diabetic medications cholesterol medication, heart medication, everything. And, you know, I was mid forties. So I, I started, um, with the whole 30, a friend had recommended, you know, maybe you could look at this and see if this would help you. And I read the book that goes with it. And within a week I started the whole 30. Unfortunately for me, the whole 30, which is a pretty strict elimination way of eating for 30 days, and you don't weigh yourself I thought miraculous things were going to happen because I changed everything about what I was eating. And after 30 days, I had lost four pounds. Mm. I was very frustrated. It wasn't the tremendous outcome that I was looking for. 
But I had already committed to myself that I was going to do it for a hundred days because I knew 30 days was not going to change my relationship with food and my behaviors. So um, after that, I started eating paleo and did well, came off a lot of medication. But even that for me was not quite working. And then I switched over to eating ketogenically. So decreasing my carbohydrates even more. When, when was voila. this? When was when when, um, when we're looking at now? Where are we up to? Sure. I I started um, the Whole30. I started that in the beginning of 2014. And then I transitioned to a ketogenic diet in the summer of 2016. So I've been doing keto for a little over four years now. And... Part of the way through that process, I also added in intermittent fasting and some extended fasting. So I'm off all my medications now. I don't take any prescription medications, um, except a few months ago, I started taking thyroid medication, but I don't take anything for diabetes any longer. I don't have a diabetes diagnosis, so have reversed that and have lost a significant amount of weight over the years. So uh, that's Fantastic. that's been my journey. Yeah, that's fantastic, yeah. you know. And ultimately, how do you feel? I feel great. I feel surprised. Sometimes I wake up and I'm still surprised that this is how my life is right now because the path I was on, it wasn't going this way. When I was 38, I remember specific incidents when I was having neuropathy pain in my upper thighs. And again, my naivete that this wasn't going to affect me until I was 75 or 80. I was 38 and mm. I was having neuropathy. And so I started, this is early on with Dr. Google. So I started researching what it meant and I realized I was at risk. I was going to start to lose toes and eventually limbs. So I think there was a time when I really didn't see that I was going to grow older in a healthy way. And so now getting to be, I'm 51 now, I feel probably younger than I felt when I was 30, more stamina, more capable, better in my body. So mm. what was the shift? I mean, you know, when you said, you know, your friend had recommended the whole 30 and then, you know, within a week you made this radical shift, whereas up until that time you were almost... I'm hanging on to dear life in terms of, you know, having to, was it fear or was it, or, you know, what, what was that switch in that week? I think part of it was just a reality check with myself that whatever I had been doing, effort or not effort, it wasn't working. I was staying unwell. I was keeping the weight on. And it wasn't getting better. And I was getting older. And so the things that weren't getting better were going to be getting worse. And I just really realized I had to change it. I couldn't wait for new medication to change it or new strategy or new technique. I had the power to change it. And even just starting with the Whole30, just by reading that book, it opened my eyes to so much about the power of food. I was in complete denial of that before. I thought eating Pop-Tarts for breakfast with a diet soda was fine. I mean, technically I knew it wasn't fine, but it's what I did. And so to really learn about the power of food and its ability to heal and help the body work optimally, mm -hmm. that changed for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so I think the big part, 
that changed after that, once I got going with it, mm-hmm. is I had to start identifying myself differently. When I went to a social gathering and a friend ran up with cake pops and said, Terry, you have to have these cake pops. They're so good. I had to identify I don't eat cake pops. Mm-hmm. And that was very weird for me. I, you know, I had a lifetime of eating cake pops. So I had to start seeing myself differently, that there were foods that worked well for me and that I identified with. And there were foods that no longer I identified with because they didn't work well for me. Yeah. I've got in the habit of saying to people when they say, oh, have a sweet. And I just say, I don't eat sugar. Mm-hmm. And it's a simple way. It just sort of cuts out. You don't have to explain anything. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't eat sugar. Now, they do look at you like you have four heads sometimes when you (laughs) say that. But I think the more comfortable we are with just owning it as a positive thing, the less other people resist it. Those friends didn't keep pushing the cake pop. I told them they were beautiful. I told them that they had done a great job making them. And I still didn't eat one. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have to make them uncomfortable and they didn't push anything on me. Yeah. I find that challenging with my language of love. Yeah. I mean, I would struggle being the giver of food because give mm-hmm. the giving of food is my expression. So, yeah, it's a really delicate matter because those cake pops mm-hmm. symbolize so much for the, for the maker and the giver of food. Mm-hmm. You're rejecting my love. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I do, I do struggle with, with, um, people not, um, certainly not accepting or receiving that so that's on the other Mm -hmm. end on the other hand but that really now to be fair louise i have been on the receiving end of your expression of love through food and louise is a phenomenal cook (laughs) so uh fortunately we eat similar ways so (laughs) she cooks ketogenically and i eat ketogenically it's perfect (laughs) so but that's but that's you know but that that i understand because we have that shared we we share that identity mm-hmm. maybe maybe we could um just backtrack a little bit that um St. Mm-hmm. Terry and I have crossed paths a number of times at um you know we're part of this wonderful you know keto community international keto community and we've um shared shared um some really great times at um the low carb conferences and the um the festivals so um yeah so mm-hmm. yeah but so too i've shared shared your um you know your hospitality as well so it's been been really great so um but that identity is really part of that mindset that we've made monumental shifts and really i'm sure that you would appreciate that cognitive dissonance perhaps you know that mm-hmm. was really what where you were I'm healthy-ish, sort of, maybe not, but I'm okay with that divide. But you've been able to bridge that divide and it's been really an area of, um, you know, it's still a challenge, isn't it, this mind- mindset? It's still it is. a struggle. But I think at that time when I really was in that mindset of being naive and stubborn, actually what I really felt underneath it is I felt pretty defeated and unable to do differently. The power that those foods had, the power that that, you know, so many years of learning to do things that weren't good for me, I felt pretty powerless. And so to really kind of come into my power of I can choose what food I eat, how often I eat, 
when I don't eat, that I have control over my health and my weight in ways that I never realized before. I felt I was a victim to it. And so that's been a huge shift for me. Yeah. And, and, and it is that, it's the knocking of your confidence of I'm powerless and I can't do anything to that coming into, ah, it wasn't that I was powerless. It wasn't that I didn't have willpower. It's that I didn't know what I was doing wrong and now I do. Mm-hmm. And then you, mm-hmm. and you start to have choices. Absolutely. And that, that gives you the power. I, I feel so different now than three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And and that really resonates with Jackie, you know, where where it wasn't a matter of the willpower, it was really about the choice. You know, that that was something that really resonates. I know you've said that before, Jackie, about the willpower. Yeah. And when you start to eat foods that nourish you, I think it is, you feel nourished. You feel you don't feel like you're a slave to those foods anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the, that's one of the go ahead. It's the sugar roller coaster. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, um, so currently, um, well, we haven't gone over this yet. My career has been primarily as a psychologist. I was in private practice for about 14 years. And more recently, for the past two years, I've been working actively with the fasting method. So it's been a really great thing for me of being able to bring my passion for eating and health with the behavioral and mindset pieces from my career background to kind of marry marry those two things together. But one of the things we talk a lot about um, in the community is it's not about willpower. It's about choice and having the right information to empower ourselves. I didn't feel empowered before. I felt defeated and that I was just railing against the the system. Mm. And now I feel so much more empowered. And again, as you said earlier, Louise, it doesn't make it always easy. There are times when, you know, I struggle with not eating certain things or wanting certain things, but it's gotten so much easier. And I like to think of the idea of food freedom. I never had freedom from food when I was very diabetic and overweight, I would eat a huge meal to the point of being in pain. And within 10 minutes, I was already thinking about when would I be able to eat again? And what would I have next? Now I don't feel it that same way. I can go for hours without thinking about food. I can fast for multiple days. I had a hard time going more than an hour without certain foods before. And so to see that, again, food freedom develop for me has been amazing. And and I like to see that happen for other people as well. So did you get into fasting before you started working at the fasting method? I did. Soon after starting to eat ketogenically, a lot of people that I was in contact with at the time had started doing some extended fasts, some multiple day fasts. And so I started with three-day fast. So once a month, I would do a three-day fast. And then I realized maybe I didn't have to just do long ones like that, but maybe I could do a different pattern. And then I started working with Megan Ramos from the fasting method as a coach for a little bit. And she had me do more intermittent fasting where I would fast three days out of the week 
alternating days. And it was pretty magical for my body. During that time, I lost a significant amount of weight, body recomposition, blood sugar management improved again. Um, so that really became powerful for me. And then I started working with them about a year, year and a half later after that. So it's been a part of my life now for a good three and a half years, probably, the fasting piece. Mm. So do you still fast now? I do, but in a very varied way. For example, I generally always eat with an 18-6 approach, meaning from the last meal today until my first meal tomorrow will be 18 hours. And then I eat two meals, usually about six hours apart. So would refer to that as an 18 six. Mm-hmm. Then some days I skip the first meal. So that becomes a 24. About a month ago, I was doing three 42 hour fasts a week. Again, so just Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I didn't eat. And then I ate the other four days of the week, two meals a day. About two months ago, three months ago, I did a four day fast. So an extended fast. So I am a big, obviously a big proponent of fasting as a tool for health, for weight loss. It can be very powerful for both. For me, it was an important factor in reversing the diabetes and maintaining that, giving my liver and pancreas breaks where they got to do other jobs that they were needing to do and stop producing so much insulin to keep handling the food that I was eating nonstop, that's, that's been huge. Mm-hmm. What's, a, what's a normal day for you in terms of the types of food that you eat? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big believer that whatever style of eating we do, that no one size fits all. And so mm-hmm. even when I say I eat ketogenically, if we had 20 people lined up who all eat ketogenically, I'm guessing we eat at least 19 different ways. (laughs) I would say now I focus very much on whole food, low carb, quite low carb. I try not to use a lot of sweeteners. That's been a a challenge for me over the past year or so working on getting those out of my way of eating more. But a typical day would look like two meals. I start in the morning. Um, Some people start later in the day, but I do a breakfast, and then a late lunch. So I'm usually done eating by about three o'clock each day. And they would, so it'd be two meals, good portion of protein, animal protein. I do eat um, animal protein and a good amount of healthy whole food fats and generally pretty low carb that just kind of occur naturally in the vegetables or whatever I'm eating. I do a little higher carb than a strict ketogenic diet at this point. So for example, right now, that would mean for me, I have some raspberries in my fridge. So, you know, I eat some fruit here and there. I eat hummus here and there. Not, you know, I'm not talking hot fudge sundaes, but adding in some whole food carbohydrates. So I do, I would say a little bit more of what some people would refer to as carb cycling, I have some days that are a little higher carb, but for me, those higher carb days are still pretty low carb compared to yeah. how I would have eaten in the past, yeah. but that varies a little bit. 
that's obviously for our like our UK listeners and our Australian listeners, you know, we're we're very envious of obviously the choices um, that you have mm. in the US. You know, I know that you've got Whole Foods and you've got some amazing product ranges on Amazon, and you know, mm-hmm. you've got loads and loads of you know well. Um, you know, serviced industries, Fox Hill bakeries. I mean, if only mm-hmm. I could have a Fox Hill, you know, um, you know, bread rolls or un, is it the unbuns or unbuns? Yes. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, you're so spoilt for choice. I think that would be the hardest thing if I was in the US would be, you know, being able to, you know, navigate the choice that you have. Is, is that an issue? Absolutely. I was just going to say, as you started to say that, like, wow, I hadn't even thought about that. But in reality, sometimes having those products available, open Pandora's box for me, (laughs) I could eat those bread products every day and they're healthier. You know, they're, they're quality ingredients. I'm very picky about the ingredients of the products that I buy, but even so eating them every day gets my food gremlins going again. That means I'm eating bread every day. What else will I do? And so it it makes me have to keep those things in check. Mm-hmm. And I am pretty picky about here we do have a lot of products and marketing, you know, for anything keto. You slap keto on the label so that people will buy it and pay more money for it. I'm really careful about those things because generally many of them do not have quality ingredients that I'm comfortable putting in my body. So just because they're low carb or keto, they don't necessarily fit my way of doing it. And they they fit for other people and that's fine. But it is very tempting. I could load my cabinets with keto snacks, goodies, meals, absolutely according to the label, ketogenic but I don't think I would do well with them behaviorally and psychologically and some of them health wise, even just based on some of the ingredients that they Mm -hmm. contain. But it actually is like the, what is that saying? It's the, it's a blessing, but also a curse is that Mm -hmm. it it makes it more challenging at times to have those options. Yeah. I think it's in a way better not to have those choices and then you don't have to make them. You just eat real Mm -hmm. food. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first, it was when I first started the Whole30, prior to that, if I had had a stressful day at work, on my way home from work, I would stop to buy a particular sweet that I really loved. And then my debate in my head was, how many can I eat before I leave the parking lot? How many more can I eat before I go into the house? If they're not all gone, should I throw them away or shall I go ahead and finish them tomorrow? And oftentimes I just finished the whole package that night. And when I changed to a new way of eating, that debate was gone. It wasn't how many of them to eat and when. I just don't eat them. But then I did have to figure out what else do I do with that stress or those feelings that I'm having that would have been addressed by eating a whole package of them that night on the way home. But it really simplified the questions, the debate that was always raging in my head about what could I justify eating, how much of it, when, again, kind of going back to the food freedom. And energetically, that's taking, that was taking up a lot of your energy thinking about that all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what did you do with the extra 
headspace stress, time you had yeah. and the stress. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. I feel like I wasn't very conscious of it at the time. Like it wasn't something I set out to do different things. Now I'm more conscious of it that I have to activate my other coping strategies. I have to, you know, maybe it's why I have two dogs, but that I have to reach out to people and feel connected, that I have to find hobbies and I need to go for walks and enjoy the beautiful surroundings around me, whether in the weather permitting times here, that's most of the year, but that I have to stay connected to my other strategies that I wasn't used to activating. Mm -hmm. So I think, as I said before, I wasn't very aware that I was doing it, but it really required me to fill those gaps with other things. And I don't just mean distractions, but again, think about it. Most of us have learned to use food, especially problematic food, as our primary go-to coping strategy. It's taught to us from infancy. What do you do with a crying baby? What do you do with a fussy toddler, a five-year-old who's throwing a tantrum? You give them food. You, you reward them with tasty things. So most of us have had this behavior kind of built in and reinforced thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So when you change how you're eating and you take those pieces out, you have to have other coping mechanisms that you're going to be working on and putting in their place. Otherwise, you're going to be very stressed out or having emotional challenges that for many of us lead back to the problematic food behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really calls to us to be working on our whole self-development, not just changing our food patterns and our eating patterns, but really work on who am I? How do I manage my emotions? What supports and resources do I access and give myself to meet life's challenges? Because again, most of us learned food will cover almost all of it, mm. but now we're changing that. Yeah. So you said you, you don't try and distract, but what do you do because you know when I'm trying to think of you know when I'm agitated or stressed or you know frustrated then it's just yeah you would have ran to the cookie jar mm -hmm. or a piece of chocolate or you know people would use mm -hmm. alcohol but now rather than you saying distract is it a diversion mm -hmm. is it something else that we meant to do some sort of other self-soothing mm -hmm. is is that what we're replacing I think so and I'll go back to the word distraction. I think there's some valid space for distraction. So for example, if I'm fasting today, if I if I've set my intention to not eat today, it's going to be a little bit easier for me if I keep busy during those times that I'm used to going to the kitchen and getting food. So keeping busy, we could label that as a distraction and I think that that fits and and I think it's a fine approach. I think where distraction gets to be problematic is we say, oh, I really want to go get that cookie or whatever. Oh, look, I'm going to go do this. The drive, the want for the cookie often still sits there while we go distract ourselves. 
and sometimes is even stronger when we come back because now we've delayed it. Mm. So I, I encourage people to really think about, let's say, for example, I'm, I'm wanting to eat problematic food because I've had a frustrating day. Like I described before, I'm on my way home from work. I've had a frustrating day. I stopped at the store to buy this very problematic food. Rather than do that, to ask myself, what do I need? Because the reality is, if I was honest with myself, I did not need cookies. Mm. I did not need sugar. I needed to relax. I needed to let go of tension. Yeah. Now, how can I meet those needs? So, and I don't think they always have to be great big, you know, entertaining things or whatever. But like for me, I like to do jigsaw puzzles on the computer. That's a nice way for me to unwind. So instead of stopping at the store and doing that, after I come home, I can sit down, get my music on and do some jigsaw puzzles. That's my, that's meeting the need to unwind. So by asking myself, what do I need right now? Now, part of my brain is going to say, you need cookies. <laughs> but that's the old Terry. That's the old coping strategy coming out. That's the lizard part of my brain saying, we know this works, go do this. But I need to override that and say, but what I actually need, let's say in an example, I need to feel safe. Oh, well, how can I feel safe? I can reach out to this person. I can focus on positive affirmations, whatever it is. I can meditate. I can go for a walk. I can listen to music. So again, in these examples, I don't see those as distractions, just taking me away from the want of the food. I see them as conscious choices to meet the need that I would have met with food. And in a so way, it's not really. Yeah, sorry. It's it's not really a replacement, but it's obviously you've created greater understanding about the the input or the driver to that emotion or that feeling that had that reaction or that behaviour. So it's a bit more mm -hmm. sort of understanding of the inputs to the outputs. And I would use this analogy for people in the community if if this fits. My frustration with much of the way most of our medical practices have focused on diabetes is we focus on managing the symptom. Mm -hmm. We give you a medication to lower your glucose level so we consider that mission accomplished. But the reality is your insulin resistance stays high and keeps getting worse and so the underlying cause isn't what we're addressing. We're just treating the symptom. And so when I really think of the idea of just distracting myself, that's treating the symptom versus going at the underneath piece is the same as addressing, I'm going to lower my insulin and manage my blood glucose through the food that hits the actual cause, not the symptom. And so if I'm sad, I'm going to address the sadness address it at that level versus let me go buy something new to make myself feel better. Yeah. That's treating the symptom of the sadness. But you have to be willing to dig deep into yourself and to look and acknowledge what's going on. Whereas what we tend to do is mm -hmm. just stuff it down with food and try and forget about it. And we don't want to think about it. 
Absolutely. And so this is, I keep emphasizing this in every venue that I can. There's a, a guy who wrote a book called Indistractable and a little off topic of this, but one of the things he talks about in that book or one of his quotes is basically real behavior change comes with identity change. It's not just practicing a new behavior. If we don't make the identity change, the practiced new behavior falls off. And we've all done that before. Mm -hmm. We dieted for three months, we lost a lot of weight, and then we went right back to our old habits. And so the identity change has to come. Mm -hmm. And and as hard as this may feel on the outset, I think that's the key for all of us with this. I have to be willing to dig in and change at a deeper level, not just the surface of how do I eat? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for the recommendation of that book um, because um, mm. it it was actually I heard that on your uh, yours and and Daisy, um, our good friend Daisy uh, podcast, the Monday Monday mindset. So um, immediately I got the Audible book, and obviously the the author you know recommends a whole range of applications and obviously things about tweaking habits um, the time blocking so it's been actually um, that particular um, tool the toolkits that he gives has actually mm-hmm. been quite good and every time I distract myself with Facebook or social media I'm going well what is it that I should be doing and I'll go back to my mm-hmm. you know my time block and um, yeah, and that sort of thing right um, he mentioned about pocket. So all the tabs that I have open, my, my open tab brain is now in a pocket um, application. So, um, yeah, it's it's changed efficiencies because obviously when you are working, as we have been in this lockdown period, you know, it's been very stressful and just trying to still maintain a certain level of expectation productivity. So, um, yeah, those, mm-hmm. those tools. But why don't you tell us a bit more about Monday Mindset with um, – with Daisy and your podcast, sure. So it's 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 an interesting endeavor um, for me, and I think for Daisy, in that we met similar to how I met um, both of you, but through kind of the keto world. But this podcast is not about keto. It's not about fasting. Um, it's really not about food at all. I, I think we've only mentioned it a few times. It's really more about Daisy and I just sharing things that we listen to and learn that we think are useful. And we try to make it a little bit of a bite-sized thing that maybe if people are working at work that they could listen to on the way to work or something. Um, but really just kind of current thoughts about mindset and behavior change, ways to kind of activate our ourselves in our best way and achieve our goals. So it's it's for me, it gets to be a lot of the fun talk that I like to do, a lot of the psychological talk, even what I refer to as kind of some woo-woo talk about mm-hmm. um, you know, more spiritual and and uh maybe to some people might feel a little out there, but I, I think is really worth um, digging into. I want to make another book recommendation at this point <laughs> for listeners, because I think regardless of what our challenges are, this is probably one of the books that I think is 
good for everyone. So we've been talking, Jackie, you brought up the idea that the change, if we're willing to change more deeply and really address things, Mm -hmm. then these behavior changes will make more sense. But if I think about people who have worked on changing how they're eating, some people who might have added in intermittent fasting and whatnot, if underneath it, they carry beliefs that they're not worthy, they're not lovable, they're not enough, those changes are hard to make because our brain keeps going back to the, you know, it doesn't matter, you can't really achieve this, this isn't really available to you. So the book that I recommend to everyone is called Self-Compassion. Mm-hmm. And it's written by a psychologist named Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F, as in Frank. And it is powerful because it's not just kind of the self-esteem talk that you sometimes get in self-help books. It's not just feel great about yourself. You're the greatest. It's really digger, digging deeper than that. It's loving yourself even with the not so great parts and embracing those parts. And I think it helps people really to see, even when I'm doing things that are problematic, I'm still lovable. I'm still worthy. It's it's about kind of a, a different level of self-acceptance. So we don't always talk to ourselves so critically and judge ourselves so harshly. Mm. Because again, if you think about it, if if my goal, let's say, is to lose weight, and on the surface, I said, okay, I'm going to eat this way and I'm going to do this because I really want to lose weight. But in the back of my head, I'm saying, I hate my body. I can't lose weight successfully. I've lost it before, but I always gain it back. I'm not going to really get the momentum to make this a lasting lifestyle change. I'm going to push hard against it for a little while, and then I'm going to slide back in. Mm. And so really working on, I've got to accept myself differently, accept my body differently. And yeah, I still want to keep growing and learning and helping my body work better. And I'd like to get into that size jeans or whatever it is. But it's coming from a different place of a positive self-acceptance. And I I talk about kind of a positive self-coach. This is okay. You're struggling right now. What do you need? Rather than a critical coach, this is, why did you do that? You know mm-hmm. that doesn't work. You always do this to yourself. Mm-hmm. That's not going to help me. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring that up because there are some people that respond differently and they respond to that critical, you know, that critical tough love sort of coach. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that in in the keto community that there are those personas that are out there and they are that authoritarian and they are, you know, I don't, yeah. And I look at that and one, it evokes so much fear in me, like. That aggression, you know, not so much. Then it stirs the, well, who the who are you to tell me what to do, buddy? But mm-hmm. it's just how your how, how you receive those messages. You're saying about how your brain is programmed. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously how you see yourself, how that sort of information matches up. But that really gets to you know that whole entire you know entirety that you said that holism, you know, 
whether it is mm-hmm. that holistic view of self. So um, I was going to mention one other book that you recommended. I remember <laughs> I think it was a post or some sort. It was Carol Dweck Dweck's book on mm-hmm. mindset. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was fantastic. That was mm-hmm. that, that sort of helped me shift a few barriers in in my thinking as well so we'll make sure we put that on the show notes as well so great and that one I think the key takeaway for me is the idea that she talks about growth mindset versus Mm, a fixed mindset that's it and when we approach things from a fixed mindset we say things in our head like let's say I'm watching a Facebook group and I say wow those people she lost 110 pounds doing keto why can't I do that? What's wrong with me? She has something I don't have. She's lucky. She has good genes or whatever. With a growth mindset, we look at that and say, wow, she lost 110 pounds. What can I learn for her, from her story to help me in my journey? Hmm. What things that she does might work for me? So it doesn't change the facts at all. It changes how we use the facts. And from a fixed mindset, again, we're basically saying, I don't have what it takes. You're either born with it or you're not. And I can't have it. And a growth mindset says, huh, there's something there that I need to learn. And I need to tweak until I find how it works for me. Yeah. And that's a really good segue with the fasting because, you know, I can imagine, you know, when people sort of say, what, I'm not going to eat for how long? You know, that's obviously, and we, obviously, we here have have fasted and we've sort of experienced some of the benefits and we realise, you know, that it is a real shift in in thinking to to not eat for, for periods of time, you know, intermittently or time-restricted eating or extended fasting. But, yeah, it's it certainly is a, a real shift in, in mindset as well. Yeah. And I think, again, the important thing there is how we talk to ourselves about it. If I talk to myself and say not eating is the hardest thing I could have to do, I have to fast, we talk about it like it's a – you know, terrible thing. It's a punishment versus I'm going to give my body a break and skip eating today. I'm going to let my body just be in healing mode today. If just how I say those different sentences, you can tell you, you get a different sensation from it. One creates tension and resistance and one creates kind of expansion and openness. And so how we talk to ourselves about it, if I say, um, you know, I, I choose not to eat today versus I don't get to have food today, hmm. same thing, but evokes a totally different response in our body. Yeah. So how do you work with um, people when they want to come, when they come to you for the fasting method? Mm-hmm. So we offer two types of coaching. We have fasting coaching where those sessions are going to focus on the protocols, the talking about levels of electrolytes, focus on what you're eating between fast, those kinds of things, more the technical aspects of fasting. Mm -hmm. And then I do the behavioral 
component of that. So I talk much less with my clients about protocols and when to eat and what to eat, but much more about what to do with their desire for sugar, what they might see as a food addiction and and how we then work with that, helping them identify what do I do when I'm feeling hungry? What does that mean? What are my approaches? But to be honest, a lot of my work with clients comes down to more of the psychological pieces that we've talked about. Feeling like I'm worthy of this. I have the ability to do this. Because most people who come to us, they've had years of dieting and years of success and then failure in their way of looking at it. And so my work with them is to really encourage seeing it differently, having a different mindset, digging into these deeper things so that we know the change is possible long-term, not just, I'm going to lose this weight to go on this cruise in August and then gain it all back. Yeah. So really making the inner change. So to become a lifestyle choice rather than a diet in inverted mm-hmm. commas. And I think to understand what are the limiting beliefs that keep getting in our way. Mm. People who have struggled with their weight since a very young age may carry a belief, it doesn't matter what I do. I've been heavy since I was a kid. I will always be heavy. I will always come back to this. Mm. You're not mm. going to succeed if that's the limiting belief that's, that's kind of you know running in the background. Even if so even having, if you don't know that it's running, it's running. You're right. programming. It's a pro in a preset programming that you're not even aware of. Absolutely, and um, some people compare it to it's kind of like you have software running in the background mm-hmm. that you don't even know is running, and you need to get in there and find what are these things that are running in the background that get in the way for you, and then Correct. changing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's interesting Great. isn't it because it's really about that um it's then it becomes not about the food but it's about everything else you know the f- the food is like as you said it's the sim- it's so downstream so so mm-hmm. end end output but it's everything else that's the end into you know, mm-hmm. why we're picking up that continually picking up that that cookie that's a, mm-hmm. that's the thing I want to share an example with you. I had a client who was one of her primary food challenges was M&Ms. And when she really looked at it, she, it dawned on her, she says, oh, my dad would pick those up at the store. When he would go through the checkout aisle, he would bring home a bag of M&Ms, a little bag of M&Ms. So for her, that was, dad loves me. He brings me those Mm -hmm. when he comes home. Mm -hmm. And now she's older. She has grandkids. What does she do? She stops to get those. And even just identifying that helped her to see, I can feel his love. I can express my love. It doesn't have to be through M&Ms. I figured out about myself, I have a pretty strong affinity with uh, almond butter. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, it's delicious. It's on a healthy food list for me. So, But I can eat, I could eat practically a small jar a day. It's insane. But what I realized, I was I was doing this particular um, kind of a tapping technique about it. And I realized, for me, almond butter 
is my peanut butter, but of my youth, it was peanut butter all the time. And peanut butter, I connect with both my mom and my grandmother because we would make toast with peanut butter on it. And at night, I could sit out in the kitchen with my mom having hot cocoa and peanut butter toast. So now as an adult, when I walk through the kitchen and grab a tablespoon of almond butter, I'm, I'm tapping into that. And I had to learn that I can connect with her or have those feelings without having that food. But I never realized before that that food carried a specific emotional connection for me. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you know, it is profound. It really is profound because there's so much of, yeah, in my, in my darkest days, standing in the kitchen, you know, eating buttered toast as I'm cooking tea. Mm-hmm. But because I've had such a busy and stressful day, I hadn't had lunch, you know, there were six pieces mm-hmm. of toast if, while I was actually, you know, cooking dinner. Um, yeah. So it, it just encapsulates so much of the trauma of, um, mm-hmm. you know, the experiences around that sort of time, you know, you transport me right back to, to that dark, mm-hmm. those, those dark times and mm-hmm. how food soothed me so much, you know, and it really, absolutely, it does. It has this most magical quality of, you know, easing pain through, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it tastes good, you know. And your um, brain remembers that. Mm-hmm. Your brain wants to go back to that. And so our brain wants to avoid what hurts us because its job is to keep us safe and protect us from dying. And it wants to give us what secures us. Mm. And so you learned buttered toast. That's when I'm safe. That's when I'm good. That's when life is okay. And now you're having Mm. to disconnect from that message in your brain. What was equally interesting was um, the community, the aspect of the community and how that makes us feel safe. And, you know, when we create these online communities and we have our, um, we tap into those social connections, especially in, in the hive mind and the, the kindred spirits and, um, and the tribe as metaphors for, for our connections. And, um, Jackie and, um, Heidi, you know, and, and ourselves were, were regularly fasting. So we became, you know, this sort of, you know, fasting, you know, checking, checking in and, um, on regular, um, fasts. Fasting buddies. So, fasting buddies. So Jackie goes on holiday. And I think then Heidi went on holiday. So summertime, obviously in the UK. And we, our little habit training wheels, our habit sort of fasting buddy wheels had fallen off. And it took the longest time to, to get back into, you know, into this routine. And I know Heidi um, was posting the other day that so she's she's sort of back getting herself back into into routine, but it was just that overwhelmedness of, you know, we had constructed this is going to be hard. This is this is so hard. Why is this so hard? And it took at least a month before I could even conceptualize what it would be like not to eat. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that that was an interesting how habits keep us, I suppose, you know, abstaining or, you know, I can't moderate, so I need to abstain. Mm-hmm. So our, our habits keep us safe in, in these Absolutely. choices. And I think we also had the accountability. So if we were fasting, even though you, you Louise, are six hours ahead, 
if we were fasting from Sunday night till Tuesday lunchtime, irrespective of whether you were fasting or eating at that time, or we were fasting and eating at that uh, at that time, we were accountable to each other, and so we did it. And now we've lost that connection. I haven't. You got back into it last week, but I haven't got back into it. I was going to do it on Sunday night, and by Monday lunchtime, it's like, oh, it's lunchtime. I need to eat. And I couldn't get past lunchtime. So I need to, we need to find a way to, to bring that back in again. Mm-hmm. Heidi's very good. She's, she's back. She's, she's got a back. Mojo. Yeah. Can you bring up the whole topic of, you know, um, Gretchen Rubin's work, but the idea of some people find it easier. Accountability is always a factor, I think, but. Some people find it easier to follow through with commitments and agreements they make with other people Mm. and have a very hard time following through with commitments they make for themselves. So if they say, I'm going to fast until lunch and at 9 a.m. they want to eat. But if they say at noon, Louise and I are both going to eat again, they feel more commitment to that. And so a lot of people really kind of dig into that. Why do I not? follow through with my commitments I make to myself. And again, I think for some people, it goes back to that belief. If I don't believe I can do it, if I don't believe I'm worth it, why would I bother following through with those commitments? Mm. Yeah. But I believe someone else is worth it. So I will follow my commitment that I make to them. I, I certainly ag- agree with the external. I, I can't internally regulate myself. So that's where the external accountability has to always be because obviously using the Gretchen Rubin, I'm a, an obliger. So I will externally account to, to someone else. So, um, yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why the group sort of worked with, you know, with Jackie and with, um, and with Heidi being there to sort of, I have to report. So obviously mm-hmm. with the time zone difference, it was, um, you know, I got in first. So, um, not that I'm in competitive, um, <laughs> that way, but no means competitive, but it was just, yeah, that external accountability that I could sort mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I need to check in because that's what I've said to, to, to Heidi mm-hmm. and to Jackie. So um, I can't let them down. Absolutely. Mm. So before we go on to our last um, questions, how can people get in contact with you? Sure. They can reach out via the fasting method. So just www.thefastingmethod.com. And under the tab for coaching, they can sign up for a consultation if they're interested in either the fasting coaching or the behavior coaching or both. And then the other option is if you're not interested in working with one of us or working with me individually, you also can join the community. So if you join the community, it's a monthly fee, and then you have access to all of the resources. There are two or three support groups each day throughout the work week. There's one support group, at least on both days of the weekend. Um, And these are Zoom meetings where people come in and talk about a specific topic. So, for example, my two support groups are on healthy habits and healthy mindset. We have some for women in health. We have some for movement and beginning fasting and extended fasting. We have other meetings that go on within the the community. Dr. Fung or Megan Ramos 
hosting question and answer sessions. Dr. Nadir Ali hosts some sessions. He's a cardiologist that works with us. So there are lots of opportunities within the community to stay connected with people, to have that hive or, or um, tribe feel. We also have, um, it's kind of like a forum where people can write messages back and forth, but it's private to just our community. We call them fasting circles. So you can write in there, you can support each other, you can ask for support that you need. So tons of ways to be really actively engaging in the behaviors around fasting and how you eat. Um, and again, that's a, a monthly membership that you can join. Right. So looking back on your um, on your journey, on your health journey, and you've you know really should be proud of the I suppose the recovery and the regaining of your health. What, if anything, would you do differently? Do you think? Wow, that's a difficult one. Um, I guess one thing I wish I had done was to be more aware of how it was working. Because sometimes people ask me, how did you do that? And I, I feel like I just kind of sailed through it without a lot of awareness of what I was doing. And then when things got to be more challenging, I wasn't sure what, what was I using back there that was so helpful or, you know, how did I do that? So I guess I wish I maybe had done some more journaling or done something just to kind of remind myself these are the strengths that you have. These are the things that work well for you. These are the pitfalls that you might want to be mindful of. Um, so I wish I had done it maybe a little more consciously so that I could rely on those learnings hmm. in the future. But do you think as you, as you've journeyed along that some of those things, you know, because it is a sort of a feed forward process, you know, you feed back and you feed forward this iterative process, where, you know, what worked six months ago doesn't necessarily work now. So there is Absolutely. an evolution. Absolutely. And so I think even then to be able to say, okay, what what tool did I use before? What worked before? Hmm, I'm struggling with using that tool now. How might I tweak it? How might I apply it differently? Or is there a different tool? Is that one just no longer the right one at this time? And do I need a, another resource? I learn a ton by being in a community of people who are doing this as well, because I hear things they do or things they say to themselves, like, oh, that is brilliant. So I think being open to not only using the tools that I've learned, but adjusting the tools, the same tool may not work in exactly the same way now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So just following on from that. So what? would your top three tips be? My top tips would be to really work on the self-talk as probably the most important thing. To talk about your abilities, not your struggles. To talk to yourself about the you that you are creating, not the you that frustrated you in the past. Because focusing on the limitations the struggles from the past is going to keep drawing more of those to us. Focusing on our strengths, our wants, our images of the future, that's going to help draw that to us and create that in us. So focus on the self-talk would be my first tip. Having self-compassion would be my second tip. I think you mentioned earlier listening to Amy Berger and 
I listened to one of her episodes with Daisy that just really resonated for me. The idea that eating ketogenically is simple. Once you know the information, it's simple. Fasting is simple. Once you know the information, that does not make it easy. So being compassionate with yourself, learning to value yourself and the small successes that you have rather than only giving yourself credit when you reach the kind of pinnacle goal. So self-compassion. And then my third tip I think would be to find a balance for yourself between structure and flexibility. So for example, I'm someone who eats two meals a day. But if I've already eaten my two meals and then friends say, hey, we want to go out Saturday night. Can you go out? And for me, that's like way past my last meal time. I need to have some flexibility if I want to maintain my social life. Either it means I go out with them and don't eat, or it means I move my meal times that day or, or just open it up a little bit for myself. So structure, I think, keeps us going, but flexibility is what makes the structure sustainable. Mm, that's so true. That, yeah. that really, I think that gets to that black and white thinking, that conditional mm-hmm. thinking, you know, that these are my rules. I am keto. That means that I cannot, you know, robotically mm-hmm. move beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that also, mm-hmm. for me, that balance, finding that balance between moderation and abstaining because social situations can be, can be quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for any keto person, I can't eat that. Well, I can, but. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's 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 challenges certainly for for people that um for folks that mm-hmm. have that black and white and thinking. E- and even that, I try to encourage the words you use. Say to yourself, "I'm choosing not to eat that," versus "I can't have that." When I say I can't have it, I get tense and I resist that. But when I say, "Hey, I'm choosing not to eat sugar," I feel empowered and and I feel mm-hmm. able to move forward with it. So if that fits for you, I think even changing little wording like that can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Great. It's been great to catch up with you. And I know that we um, yeah, would really appreciate to have you on again would sometime in the future if you sure. would be available again. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And um, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you to both for having me here. It's nice to get to meet you almost in person, Jackie. <laughs> um, we're getting closer, um, but I really appreciate this opportunity as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Jackie, I, I don't know about you, but I, I do feel quite um, inspired, I suppose, and and feeling that having that connection between not only making the best choice for our bodies, but, um, you know, knowing the mind and the reasons for our food choice is equally as important. Yes. And we forget that our mindset plays such an important part in that, uh, important role in that choice. Mm. We've really got to dig down and, and look inside ourselves. And I sometimes forget to do that. Yeah, and it's not just that we need to know what the f- the right food choices are for for each of us, but it's obviously when we're sort of walking towards the fridge, 
that we're being mindful of the fact that are we, is this a head hunger or am I sort of feeding some other emotion or emotional driver for, for that particular food choice? Mm. And I know that we've all been very stressed these last couple of months with, you know, quarantine and lockdowns and, you know, second waves that, um, our emotions have played a big part of, um, you know, in our lives, boredom particularly. Yeah. Frustration and anger. Um, yeah, it plays a, plays a huge role. Mm. And I haven't heard about it so much now, but in the beginning of lockdown back in March, and April, you were hearing people who were going to the fridge, pulling out, um, eating, drinking, perhaps more than they otherwise would have done. Now, part of that is because they were at home where they might not have been before. But there's obviously a lot of stress and frustration, as you said, going on. Um, that didn't affect me so much. I don't know about you. I didn't sort of turn to food at that time. I, I don't know. Um I can't really recall about the the boredom, but I think it, or the boredom from the lack of routine. Um, I was still working, obviously, from home and working online, and so I had obviously some some work. But there was there was a, a lot of other emotions as we were settling in. Obviously, my transition experience here to to Bangkok that was on a separate a separate level as well. So. And certainly food choices aren't the same. It wasn't as if I could, back in Australia, run to Coles and Woolies and, <laughs> um, or get a, a delivery online or Tesco's and Sainsbury's for you. But, um, yeah, it, it's not that simple. But um, we do have Western supermarkets that, that do deliver, but it's not the same food choices as if I was um, eating, eating back home. Yeah. But we got a little bit carried away with obviously, you know, our deep dive into mindful and mindfulness and um, behavioural eating that we actually forgot to ask Terry about the benefits of fasting. Yeah. Well, I think you did ask her and then we got sidetracked onto something else so we didn't follow through. So perhaps we could cover that now. Yeah, and I think um, obviously for um, – Terry's experience so that she was sort of saying how the the change she was mixing up her routines and fasting and she noticed that she had additional uh, weight loss and um, including fat loss she was, she also mentioned about her body composition changed as well and that's obviously when we are as she said giving our pancreas a break we are increasing the access to our fat stores by lowering our blood sugar levels and increasing our um, ketone levels and lowering so, and lowering um, insulin as well yeah, absolutely. As we're giving our um, pancreas a break when we're not eating. Um, and you've got some other ones there is listed as well. Yeah. So it improves mental clarity and concentration uh, as well as lowering the insulin. It increases energy production and lowers blood cholesterol, which would be interesting for people who are worried about cholesterol. It can be beneficial in preventing Alzheimer's disease and extending life because you're reversing the aging process and reducing inflammation, which I think many people would benefit from, uh, especially with joints and arthritis and all sorts of things like that. And the important or one of the most notable um effects from fasting is the recycling of these proteins and that was obviously part of the autophagy 
So there's this partly this process by which when we move into a certain phase of our uh, fasting time, that it's the body's ability to recycle all these um, dead pro uh, dead proteins. And I suppose that's really where you are linking in that to extending life or we are, you know, reversing the aging process. Yeah. So and it's it's like a renewal. Yeah. And increasing the energy production because when you're clearing out those mitochondrial cells, then you're going to get a bit more efficient production, energy production as well. Mm. And as we are lowering our blood sugars and increasing our proteins, we are reducing the risk of cancer. And a number of people will want to, as they do, measure their blood glucose and their blood ketones, that they are trying to get to a therapeutic level of um, or a therapeutic ratio between their blood sugars and blood ketones. And, um, yeah, which I'm sure that we'll get to on another another episode. Yeah. So the therapeutic use of um fasting and and our blood sugars and ketone levels for for that yeah absolutely so jackie where can we find the show notes for this episode so the show notes will be at www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero two one great and that will be a we'll mindfully think about that's a wrap for this week jackie <laughs> Very good. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice, whether our guests are doctors healthcare professionals or not they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship it's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes especially if you're taking medication